are listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Tatenda Musinahama. Welcome to the conversation. In today's episode, we have Professor Cindy Boskin, who is an associate professor in the School of Social Work at Ryerson University in Canada. Thank you very much for joining us, Professor. You're welcome. I'm very happy to be here. Happy to have you. So, Professor, can you tell the audience um, more about yourself? Sure. Uh, I am originally from the eastern coast on the Atlantic Ocean uh, of Canada. My nation there is Mi'kmaq. So I grew up there, but then I made my way to Toronto as a teenager. I eventually um, got interested in social work, so I went to school for that, became a social worker, practiced for many years um, within Indigenous communities and agencies, and then I had the opportunity to go into a teaching position at Ryerson, so I accepted it and I went for my PhD. And my work there is a lot about bringing Indigenous knowledges and approaches uh, into the curriculum, course development, helping other professors to incorporate it into their classes, etc. So could you say that um, your Indigenous background has influenced uh, to a greater extent um, the career path that you've taken? Yes, I would definitely say so. Um, well, I think what, what the reason why I got into teaching, I think, is because I had been a social work pr- practitioner for so many years, and I thought, well, I have something, right? I have something that I can share with other people, particularly younger people coming up through the educational system in the profession. Um, so that's why I, I, I got into into teaching in the first place. Um, Pretty much everything I do is about um, trying to educate people, not just in my school of social work, but throughout the university uh, about Indigenous knowledges, colonization, its impacts today, where we're headed, and how non-Indigenous people can uh, help to uh, support us. So it's, I think it's my way of being an activist in a, and advocate, all that kind of thing, through education, because I know that I can reach a lot more people this way. But for the benefit of our listeners, can you explain to them what Indigenous people are? Mm-hmm. Well, my understanding is that there are Indigenous peoples pretty much all over the world, um, and The way that we explain uh, who we are is we say that we we are the descendants of the original peoples of whatever particular land that we are on. So that it comes first from that. It's also about having uh, similar language, cultural practices, teachings. spiritual beliefs and practices, values. It's about having all of those things in common with with each other. It's about originating from that actual land, even though we may move around and go to other places. It's also, we're also tied together 
though, um, by a history of colonization and its current impacts, um, which has been very detrimental, of course, to Indigenous peoples around the world. So Indigenous peoples are uh, connected or tied together through uh, the, the common values and knowledges and also a history of colonization. You did mention that um, there's a history of colonization and um, in relation to with uh, indigenous people. So do you think that the history of colonization has Im- influenced to a negative or positive extent the plight of indigenous people? Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, was, I would say that all of the impacts have been negative. Um, because right from the beginning, the whole intention was for colonization to destroy indigenous peoples, again, pretty much all over the world. So the idea was to either literally physical genocide and later on assimilate or it becomes cultural genocide uh, to try to get indigenous peoples to assimilate into mainstream culture, but at the same time, not really allow them to be a part of mainstream culture. So it attacked everything that we believed in. Um, Women had very powerful roles and were greatly respected at the time, and so that was attacked. Uh, They wanted to stop the culture and the teachings and the spiritual practices being taught to children. So they stole our children from their families and communities and put them in residential schools where they were basically taught that they were inferior to other people, uh, that they were demons, pagans. Uh, They took away everything that the uh, children had that identified who they were. They forced them to learn English and punished them if they spoke their original languages. It wasn't really an education. It was more about creating uh, domestic workers and farmers. So colonization has done nothing but harm and destruction to people, and we're living with those impacts now. So I understand um, that you're saying that um, it was more like brainwashing, so to mm-hmm. say. Yes. All right. So with that, can you not take some positive things that colonization or modernization has brought in, for example, modern medicine, mm-hmm. um, even education, like for example, it came with education which you went through and you're using that very same education to empower people and to create an awareness. So mm-hmm. can we absolutely take away from that or should we go back to a point where we look at the positives that have come up and try to take it from there to create sustainable changes. Mm -hmm. Well, I think when it comes to education, it's like learning the master's tools to be able to take down the masters, right? So I think it's a a lot about that. Some of us um, have gone through the educational system knowing that that's what we needed to give any kind of voice to our people. Right. 
you know, I don't think any differently now, really, than I did before my PhD and or before I became a professor. But it's incredible how much more people listen to me because of those two things. And I knew that that's how it would um, assist me. So I think that part of education, that part of education can be very helpful to us. Um, I think, again, things like modern medicine, absolutely. Um, we, you know, we have all our own medicines and, and traditional uh, ceremonies around health and such, but the thing is, like, we don't know how to do brain surgery or, you know, those of kinds course. of things, right? Mm -hmm. So, absolutely. Um, I think that that those are the things that are very helpful to us, you know. And there are a lot of great inventions that we're using today, right, that are helpful for us. And I think it's important to keep in mind that cultures don't stay static. Of they course. don't stay stuck in the past, right? Mm -hmm. So as we, um, you know, grew over the centuries, right? So we learn new things, right? And we bring in new practices. Um, and even though uh, colonization, yes, was destructive, I, there were pieces of it that were helpful to us along, along the way. So you, you could look at it a little bit like that. And without colonization, we would have still adapted and evolved. Of course. Because all populations do. Yes, that's right, in order to survive. So what I understand you saying is that um, these are good things that came, but the more grave um, implications that came were the erosion of culture and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, which brings me to the next question again, because I've heard in the debate around indigenous people's rights, um, there's the issue of self-determination and self-governance for indigenous people. So I'd like to understand what your take is on on those two issues. Mm -hmm, sure. Well, self-determination is, in a nutshell, it's really about indigenous peoples and communities being able to have control over the lives that they live. So we're talking about infrastructures and things within the communities. So having control over education, child welfare, medicine, etc. These are the kinds of things that we want to be able to bring back into our communities and such. They're there, they're there in some levels, but not anywhere near close to where we want them to be. That doesn't mean that we would necessarily reject everything that mainstream society has. That's not how it would be. But it would be about, for example, education would be about how we taught our children, right? Through storytelling and things. It would be about teaching them about our knowledges, etc., not just only mainstream knowledges, right? Our medicine, of course, we would have people um, that would be doctors, uh, nurses, like those kinds of professions, certainly. But at the same time, we would still have our own um, traditional healers and medicine people. So it's a combination of that. So that's what self-determination is about. It's about us to be able to have control over those things. Self-governance is um, a, a way to, 
put that in, implement it, to implement it, I would say. So for, for one example would be how it, it gives us the power to define ourselves rather than the federal government of Canada telling us who we are, where we can live, etc., etc. The governance in most First Nations communities right now is still a mainstream imposed governance that was placed on us through colonization. So in most communities, that's the kind of governance there is. It's like with a head person, a chief, and then they have council members and it's voting and all of this kind of thing. Whereas our traditional governments were very different from that. It was, you know, the people um, decided who, you know, the leaders would be. Um, based on their different abilities, uh, women would um, be the ones who, who could put them in those positions or take them out of those positions if they didn't behave the way that they should. <laughs> yeah, so bringing, just bringing in our ways of governing ourselves with our own laws, all right, around justice, etc., rather than having all of these foreign things placed on us all the time. I'd like to understand um, the extent to which Indigenous peoples in Canada exert political representation. Well, we have something in Canada called the Assembly of First Nations. It's um, elective. Again, it will have a leaders and then it will have different um, members from different nations, etc., as part of it. And that Assembly of First Nations um, communicates directly with the federal government. It's not based on uh, traditional forms of governance, however. It's still, it's still the mainstream kind of thing. Uh, so that's, but that is one of the ways in which negotiations and things um, happen on that federal level. So there's that. We also have um, other groups of Indigenous peoples that have pulled together and, and formed associations. So we have Indigenous Women's Association of Canada. Um, we have an Indigenous Child Welfare Association. So sometimes it's through creating those bodies um, in order to, uh, yes, negotiate right with the governments and with um, the law, the courts, etc. Uh, another way, though, that we uh, some of us do this is through our um, activism, right? So, like by that I mean like our protests, um, educating people uh, about what um, you know a lot of what the like the the resource, the mining, those kinds of things, like what they're doing to indigenous peoples, but also what they're doing to the earth. So being able to educate the public in a larger forum is considered to be political acts as well. Do you think that sort of political representation is enough or would you like more? And mm -hmm. in the event that you want more, what would you like it to look like? Mm -hmm. Well, the number one thing really is for indigenous peoples, their communities, nations, to have self-governance and the ability to negotiate directly with the federal government. So it's, that's why we often have this saying, it's nation to nation, 
right? So my nation is Mi'kmaq, and then there's, so the Mi'kmaq nation being able to talk to, um, negotiate, etc., directly with the federal government. Um, being able to govern ourselves in the ways that we believe um, that need to be in place. So taking those traditional forms of governance and laws and so on, but bringing them into the world today, how things are today. Hmm. Thank you. So this is actually quite a different discussion um, I would have with indigenous persons in Africa. Mm-hmm. So. Because it sounds like in your context, you have been granted, if I should quote unquote, (laughs) certain rights that um, certain indigenous peoples in Africa don't have. So so how do experiences of indigenous persons in developed nations differ from those of developing nations? Mm -hmm. I think in developed nations, we um, have had a it's a different it's been a different approach because we have what we call first nations um and that is more like a political term it's an accepted um you know way of of governing and that kind of a thing so like we're recognized in that way as being distinct peoples you know with um inherent rights um and we have we have a political voice. I mean, it's still a long way to go, but we do. We, we do have um, that. We have, the, you know, government representation through the Assembly of First Nations. I would say we're more um, organized. I think we're more organized through the organizations or that we create. Um, uh, but I think that also... We do indeed have isolated communities in Canada, um, so you can't get into them other than like fly in and that kind of a thing. So we do have them, but we the the majority of Indigenous peoples in say Canada, for example, fifty two percent of us today are now living in cities, etc. Right. So that makes communication an awful lot easier. It makes this easier easier for us to come together and organize and etc. So I think there's I, I think there's that. There's also the recognition that we are the descendants of the original people of that territory. And I don't see that as being the, the same as um, what I've learned about indigenous peoples in Africa. Those are the things I think that I see as different. You have explained um, the similarities. You've tried to shed light on the similarities and differences between indigenous people in developed nations um, and the plight of indigenous people in developing nations. But it raises more questions for me in the sense that Canada does have a similar colonial history as most African nations. So what do you think is the striking factor that makes the daily lives of indigenous people from developing and developed nations different? Mm -hmm. Could it be the aspect of development itself? I think it might be. Uh, I think it might be because in developed, so-called developed countries, indigenous peoples have more access to education, to participate in uh, local, uh, provincial, and 
federal um, you know governments we ha we have a voice um, I think it's also about you know access to things like education to technology all of those kinds of things the ability to you know communicate from one one community to the other, right? The communicating is simple. We have simple, a lot of ways to do that. But maybe in developing countries, those things are not as easily um, accessible. And so if not, that really gets in the way of people being able to come together, um, you know, to uh, protest against, you know, what they don't want, to have their voices heard. Um, more uh, importantly, um, so I think it, I think it's about some of that. So, in the face of the global crisis of climate change, what sustainable lessons can governments draw from indigenous communities in terms of preserving the environment? Well, it starts off from a, a, a great distance or difference, I'm sorry, in, in approaches, in indigenous approaches and mainstream capitalist kind of approaches. Um, mainstream capitalists are, are about profit um, and that, you know, the land and the resources on it are like endless and you have the right to dominate everything on the planet use it for your own profit and your own well-being without thinking about how the damage you may be doing to the earth, the water, um, the air, um, and without thinking about what are we leaving our children and our children's children. So for indigenous peoples, the, the, the earth, we refer to her as Mother Earth. Uh, and so there's a different sign of attitude. It's like we're very connected to the earth. And as human beings, a big part of our responsibility is that we are to be taking care of the earth because she takes such good care of us. If we don't do that, then we will end up in a mess like we're in right now. Um, it's about, you know, giving to the earth, the animals, etc., giving to them uh, before we take. It's about reciprocity. It's about not overextending, you know, overfishing or what have you, not do, doing things like that. It's about taking what you need, not what you want, but what you need. Um, it's understanding that when people are cutting down, massively cutting down trees, that's, the trees give us oxy oxygen. I mean, everybody knows that, um, but it doesn't seem to be of pri primary importance, right, when this happens. It's also about um, going into the earth, finding uh, natural gas, oil, those kinds of things. Um, but taking those things out of the earth for people, but without concern to what we're doing to the earth in the meantime. So it, it's not, we're more about, I think, looking at things in a balanced way, right? But I don't think mainstream is so much about that. Um, I think that um, there's also 
we understand that what we do affects everybody else and everything else. So what happens on the other side of the world is relevant to me and, and vice versa. But again, I don't think Western mainstream society really sees things that way. Um, if they did, I don't think they'd be doing you know, all this exploitation and et cetera, et cetera around, the, around the planet. So it comes from an actual mindset, right? So how do we, as Indigenous peoples, try to influence mainstream society about the things I, that I just said to you, right? So trying to educate, doing the protests, um, all of those kinds of things, um, but at the same t at the same time, building, trying to build you know, relationships with people in the mainstream, right? So having allies and accomplices, those kinds of things, right? Who believe in what I, I just said um, around taking care of the earth, etc. That other piece around, you know, for future generations, we have a kind of a saying that we look back seven generations and we look forward seven generations. And so it's our responsibility to leave the earth for those future generations. So we think a lot about, about that. What are we, you know, our great-great-grandchildren, um, just because we don't know them now, right, doesn't mean that they're not going to be our descendants, right? And why would we want to leave our children and our children's children a damaged earth. I think that mainstream society really needs to start listening to indigenous peoples who have that great deal of knowledge and wisdom about how to live on the earth without damaging it so much. So I think a lot of the answers are probably in the minds of our, you know, elderly, elder people, right, who have those kinds of things, those knowledges, and can put them forward. But that mindset is, if, it, if the mindset doesn't change, right, faster than it is right now, it's not going to work, right? It's not going to work. So I hear you saying that we should change the narrative um, from stereotyping Indigenous people as backward mm -hmm. because it's funny because in Africa we have more or less the similar, a similar um, way of doing things. For example, um, people have totems. Uh, of different animals, so right. your totem could be a zebra, your, whichever totem yeah. you have. So what they had back in the day was that if your totem was a zebra, you were not allowed to eat it, you're not allowed to hunt it, simply because, well, they'd claim you'd lose your teeth or something like that. Yeah. But when you look at the bigger scheme of things, you do realize that it was actually a way of creating a balance in how we preserve the ecosystem as well. Mm -hmm. So perhaps the people that we think of backward are, after all, wiser than what we thought. I believe so. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, okay, so again, what I take from what you're saying is that um, perhaps alluding back to what you mentioned earlier in terms of political representation and that sort of thing is that perhaps when indigenous people present their need for governments to um, realize their rights, it's probably not 
it should not be taken in the sense of governments are doing the indigenous people a favor, but it can equally be transactional because there's so much that we have to learn as well from from indigenous peoples, so much knowledge and, and that sort of thing. So. Right, right, exactly. You know, we have we have a teaching that's been passed down to us about um, the colonizers coming to our part of the world and what's been taught to us is that for some of the the original peoples that were here there were agreements made with the colonizers so they wouldn't be quite as colonizing and the the teaching is that they talked um, about this how were these two groups of people who are quite different going to live on this particular land right in together so to speak and what they say is that you know the the, the european people you're in your boat and the indigenous people you're in your canoes right and you're both traveling right down that river or whatever right side by side meaning that you're equal that boat is not better than the canoe or vice versa wow. right you have things to learn from one another right but you don't interfere with each other's beliefs and ways of doing things so if that had continued i think we would have had a very different canadian country uh, i think there would have been a lot more of indigenous knowledges embedded right in in governance and so on and so forth and th and therefore i think it would have been a much better place to be honest yeah absolutely <laughs> are there some peculiar human rights violations women in your community face yes i would say that some of those violations are coming from mainstream society and some are coming from our own people and to kind of understand how this has come about is to look back at history again in terms of pre-colonization that women were highly regarded and they had, you know, they had all those roles. They were involved in governments and law and family and so on and so forth. So we have a phenomenon in Canada, the missing and murdered Indigenous women. And over the years, uh, Indigenous women's organizations have uh, tried to track murdered Indigenous women and women who just disappear, right? And right now, we've, we've, we're up to about 1,800 that has happened over the last 20 years. And it's only very recently that a national inquiry was put, oh. put out to look at what this was about. So it took a long time for women advocating and pushing before the federal government Good even answer. wanted to look at that, right? Um, and so n now that it, it, it's in place, we hope... Um, that we're going to get more cooperation from the government, the criminal justice system, uh, policing and, and communities and so on, right? Because we still have all these unsolved, they're murders, mm. but the police have deemed them whatever, Sorry. something not. And our disappeared women, where are they, right? So it's these are the kinds of questions that we're struggling with today and wanting to ensure that we follow through on. At the same time, stopping this attitude towards Indigenous women and girls. So we have that part of it. We believe, um, we believe that for the most part, 
the murdered and missing women are have been in, have come into contact with acquaintances or strangers and that's who, and they and believe that the majority are white white men are doing this to indigenous women that's what we believe so we have to see if we can find that out we believe that the highest police force in the country which is the royal canadian mounted police has been involved in this we believe that they've covered things up they've been rapists themselves right and um all kinds of things like that uh there's you know maybe connections between the policing and biker gangs for example in canada the two of them actually working working together you know bribing mm-hmm. right covering each other the that kind of thing so we have that but we also once again because of internalized colonization we have some of our own people who are definitely violating women right so in our communities um, and with indigenous peoples in cities and so on we have family violence we have wife wife abuse we have sexual abuse sometimes of children right all of these things they are are happening with uh, a large number of our people as well and this is where so much of the uh, healing needs to take place trying to make people today understand but you've been you've internalized this you've brainwashed you've been brainwashed in a way you know this is how it was before and think about what you're doing now and how do you how do you help people make those changes and heal and move on in a good way uh we tend to work with them differently than mainstream because mainstream is all about adversarial going mm-hmm. to court the the defense lawyer tries mm-hmm. to get you off and oh, all of this whatever right we we have see justice in a different way where putting someone in jail doesn't help it often makes them worse it also gets them off the hook because they're over there away mm-hmm. from the community. community they don't have to face anybody yeah, right that absolutely. matters so we believe that what you do is you don't throw that person out you actually work with everybody in the community because it's everybody's business right to help that person see what it had what that person has done the harm they've created for the victim but also for the victim's family and everyone around them so it's about working with that it's about the offender if you will listening to the victim speak about this is what you did to me this is what you made me feel this is how it's impacting me today so it's looking at that right and seeing how can we get this person to understand how do we educate them and all, and then right are they able to truly right feel what that victim is feeling and can they begin to move on to to some place where it's compensation of some sort and that can be a lot of things i'm not talking about money but that kind of thing uh to the to the to the women uh the children the families so that would be part of that compensation so to speak but it would also be being accountable to the entire community so these are if they have committed these violations towards women then they're going through this process right and a healing process but at the same time they're being accountable and responsible 
right, to the community people, especially the elders. So an eye is kept on them, literally, right, to see how they are progressing, right, um, in, along the way. We have found that our forms of justice, and we've, we, it's interesting because we've actually made some pretty good gains in terms of justice in Canada for Indigenous peoples in this way. So we actually have some, not all, but some control over this process um, in certain cases. Um, and so, we, again, we find that it's much more helpful for our people to put them through healing processes and be accountable to the community than sending them off to jail. Hmm. Mm-hmm. That's lovely, because here in South Africa, we are pretty much facing a lot of um, issues to do with uh, gender-based violence, and we've actually coined our, in our own rights a word we call femicide, where there's a oh, lot of yes. um, s- murders that are committed against women. Mm-hmm. So I think that would be lovely as well, because a lot of the narrative and a lot of debate that's going on around, not peculiarly around um, indigenous people, I mean, in the community in general, is that the governments are not doing um, much to tackle you know so it would be quite interesting if um we could reach a point where community has a say in how they'd like um these uh, perpetrators to be dealt with yes Hmm. yes i agree all right (laughs) right it was lovely having you professor i really enjoyed this podcast recording with you um hope you enjoyed your stay in south africa and that you will enjoy your safari travels and you have a lot of good things to share about us back at home (laughs) thank you it's it's been a privilege to be here and i've learned so much i have so much to take back to uh talk to people in canada about and i've been treated wonderfully this has been africa rights talk with me tatenda musina hamai Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore other human rights issues.